One thing I'd like to do is take a few minutes at the beginning of each lesson for the next, really for the next couple of weeks and share some of the things that I learned out there uh, this past weekend. Because I think they're so important for us as we look at Scripture, when we walk out of here and we get into the Scripture on our own, we need to understand some of these concepts that I learned that, quite frankly, I was never taught. I've, I've been following Christ for a long time. I've been in ministry 24 years. And, and some of the things that I learned last weekend, I, I never heard. And so I hope that it will be instructive and helpful for you as you go into the scriptures to, to basically mine God's truth for yourself. And one of the things is, that, you know, the Shema that we say, the word Shema means what? It means to listen. But it's not just listen or hear. It's, it's literally the hearing that produces an action in our life. It, it's, it's to hear something and act on it. And that's what... All throughout Scripture, if you look at what Jesus had to say, do you know he said more about doing than he said about believing? Now you think about that. You go through and look at all his statements. He talked much more about doing. If you love me, you will what? You will obey me. Not if you love me, you will profess me. He didn't say that. If you love me, you will obey the Hebrew mindset, there's two, there's two Hebrew words. One's Haggadah and one is Halakha. Haggadah means to literally just to interpret or teach. And that was one part of the rabbi's job. But then the Halakha means to walk what you've learned. And I think as Americans, we do a pretty good job of trying to communicate the truth and get the truth out there. The problem is implementing that truth. And some of the things he shared this past weekend, is it, it's easy to understand why. In the Western mindset, in the, the Eastern mindset are two different. The Western mindset is very Greek. The Eastern mindset uh, obviously is Hebrew, uh, where, where that culture is in an Eastern mindset. But for the Jewish mindset, it's not just to know or believe, but to answer these two questions, who are you and what are you here for? I mean, that's really what it boils down to. Who are you and what are you here for? And I want you to think about this for a second. From a Western Greek mindset, they are very abstract. That's us. We tend to be abstract. In other words, what that means is to consider theoretically or to separate, kind of a summary. We're bottom line people, aren't we? I mean, we, we, we want to know it up in our minds. We want to be able to separate out the, the minutiae and get down to just what the bottom line is. But for the Eastern person, they're more concrete. In other words, they, what concrete means to exist in physical form, to be real, to be visible. And, and I want you to think for a second of, of an illustration that will help you that he shared that I thought was very effective. Like to learn biology, what do you learn in school? What do you remember back from like junior high, high school biology? If you want to learn about a frog, how do you learn about it? That's a very Western thing. You cut it open, you look at it, you can tell what its insides are like. But do you really know what a frog is like? You don't know what a frog is like. Really, you know some little bits and pieces about the frog, but you really don't know what a frog is like. The, the Eastern mindset goes and looks at a frog in a pond. 
And they'll watch him in his, in his daily living habits and how he gets in the water, out of the water, and they'll study the, the, the animal in his environment. But for us as Westerners, what we do is we tend to want to be bottom line people. And we tend to be very linear in the way we think. Um, the way we think is mental concepts, definitions, um, propositions, and really systematic explanation of things. That's the way the Western mind functions. But for the East, it's much more about metaphor, story, dramatic action, and the way they communicate truth. Get this, did you know that scripture, more than 70% of our scripture is story? Think about that. More than 70% of scripture is story. Is that important? Of course it is. Every writer wrote from an Eastern mindset. Every audience they wrote to came from an Eastern mindset. So why do we try to attack the Bible in a Western way? You see, we really need to look at the Bible through Eastern eyes to get what they're saying. He made this statement, the Bible was written for us, but not to us in its original context. And, and just to give you an example, he, uh, one, one more thing he said that I thought was really great. He said a Greek or a Westerner tries to reach somebody's heart through their head. But an Easterner tries to reach their head through their heart. And I thought that that's really true. It's really true. And he gave this example that I thought was really great. Fill in this blank. God is love. God is holy, good. God is sovereign. See, that's very Western. If you go over in the Middle East and you say that, to a Jewish person, they would say, God is a rock. God is living water. God is my shepherd. He's my father. They use imagery. See, we define God by words, and a lot of times those words don't have near the relational component that that imagery might have to describe God. And, and listen, one thing he said that I really appreciate is he said, it's not saying that one way is right and one way is wrong. It's just saying it's different. And they both have limitations. But the truth that we learned growing up, he said, don't dismiss. It's not that it's wrong. But you see, like, pretend this is an iceberg right here, right? This is the waterline. You see this much where 90% below the waterline of the iceberg you never get if you don't get the Eastern mindset. He said, for the Jews, it was about experiential learning. When the Bible was written to make the listener join in the story with them. See, when we read a story, we read it about somebody else. When they read it, they read it about their, their history, their own self. They see themselves as part of the story. For instance, if I hold up, let me see if I got it. Here it is. So if I hold this up, and I say, what is this? What, 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 tell, me, tell me about this pen. What would you say? Huh? Yeah? 
What, what would you say about it, though? It's black. It's black. What else? It has ink. It has ink. I mean, Dave gave a very Eastern answer because most, most Westerners are, will describe it. It's got polka dots, it's black, it's got ink, or they'll tell you about it. But the, Western, the Easterner will tell you what you do with it. You write with it. You know, when you say describe it, it's what it's for in daily life. So as we go through scriptures, what we want to do is we want to ask the question, why is this in here? What is this for? And we're going to look at that more in the, the weeks to come. But like, uh, for instance, I don't know if you've ever thought, do you know in the parables, there's 4,000 parables throughout Jewish literature. In all the parables that Jesus taught, and even Orthodox Jews who were not believers consider Jesus one of the greatest parable tellers ever. Jesus only uses one name. Well, he uses two in that particular parable. But he uses the name Lazarus. He doesn't use names in, in, in parables. You ever wonder why he used Lazarus? Or Jericho, the city Jericho. And when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he uses Jericho. He doesn't use city names. It has meaning. And, and to understand that, you've got to ask the question, why is it here? And so as we look at scriptures and we go through this, we want to be asking the question, why is this here? What is he trying to get across? And try to look at it, understanding metaphor, story, and, and understanding that there's something deeper usually going on. Now, last week, Brad, thank you for teaching. You did a phenomenal job. I loved listening to what you had to say. He talked last week about a, heart, a father's heart for his child and, and ultimately rescuing that child. The last story in, in Matthew 18, 10 through 14, was about a shepherd going after that one sheep that's out there. But it started with humility back at the first part of 18. God want, they were arguing, if you remember, they were arguing over what? Who was greatest? They had just come down from the mountain, Peter, James, and John. The other nine were down there. They couldn't heal a guy, and, and it was just chaos. And so this argument broke out about who was the greatest. And Jesus takes a child, sticks him in the midst of them, and says, unless you become like this child, you don't get it. It's humility. It's not about arguing over who's great. So what he was saying is you guys have to model a heart of humility, of childlike trust. And then he said, you need to understand that sin is serious. He said, chop your hand off. I, I was just riding on, uh, on the way up here and looking at a news article uh, before I came up about this actor who chopped his hand off or his arm off to get a part. He, he literally, he was bipolar. He took a skill saw actually and cut his arm off to pose as a wounded war veteran to try to get an acting part out in Hollywood. And he ended up getting several parts. But he's just now confessing that. And I thought, how radical is that? This guy chops his arm off to get a part in a movie or a TV show. And Jesus is saying, you need to have that kind of attitude as it results with sin. Not literally, physically. But you need to take it that serious. And I think we far, way too often minimize sin and its effects. The, the sin of, especially the internal sins, the pride sins, the sins that nobody knows but us. And third, he says we need to care more about rescuing his children than about our own ambition of greatness last week. 
He said that, that shepherd goes after the sheep. And here he just leads into this week doing the same thing. And he kind of takes us into what it looks like to go into the life of somebody who is, is wayward. Last week he talked about looking at our own sin and chopping it off, chopping, you know, taking that serious look. But this week he says, what do you do when somebody is sinning, and especially if they're sinning against you? And there's a process involved. Why is sin so important for us to deal with in the church community, in our own lives? Why is it different? Why is it so important? What happens? What, what, what did Jesus say happens with sin? What did he say it was like? And what does leaven do? Yeah, it just explodes, right? It's pervasive. And that's why it's so important that we deal with it. Holiness is what God calls us to grow in, guys. He wants us to grow in holiness. And there's really three ways that he's kind of instituted that we grow through his word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the third way is through the ministry of community. Now, we live in a culture that doesn't really recognize community that much. Oh, we have communities. You've got a workout community, Greg. The people that come and lift and, and do the stuff they got to do there, they feel a part of a community, don't they? When I was in the Marine Corps, I felt, I mean, I loved the Marine Corps. Everywhere I went, I, I wore proudly my Marine emblems. Because I was part of that community. I went through a process. Why is it in the church that we don't take a lot of pride in that community? We're almost embarrassed. And that, that is the vehicle that God has set in place to bring about holiness in the life of its members. Think about that. The church is a faith community. And the, the Jewish people, Peter, James, John... Paul, they all grew up in a community that helped ensure the purity of that community by how? By accountability. And so as we look at this passage today in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, God reveals three things about our faith community. And the first is he reveals the process of growth in his faith community. See, it's a process. You don't just go from, okay, Lord, I'm yours, and now you're, what, living a perfect, holy life. You don't do that. It is a process, and he's got a process in place. And we look at that, how you deal with sin. How, how do we become holy? Because sin confronted brings about brokenness, which brings about dependence, and looking to God, which allows him to come in and then conform you to the image of Christ as he creates this growth process in you. Second, God reveals in this passage the purpose of his faith community. What the purpose is. How many of you guys know really why you go to church each week? If somebody asks you, why, why am I in a faith community? And church is not the building, it's the being around the people. You know, it's interesting because I've had a lot of people say, in fact, I've even said, this is not church right here. This is a SWAT meeting. It's a parachurch. But I was talking with Ray, and he said, you know, in the context of what you're doing, I think you're wrong. I think you are an ecclesia. See, it's the West that has made ecclesia look a certain way. 
And this fulfills what an ecclesia is. That's the word, ecclesia. And it means literally a group. And it's this group of believers coming together that enforces accountability with a common goal of being in the Word of God with a passion to be like Jesus, the rabbi. That's that. The rabbi was the kind of the, uh, the medium between God's Word and the people. And it wasn't like the people uh, had to have him to go directly to God. But what he did was he was God's way of overseeing his... He was an under-shepherd that had a responsibility for making sure the sheep were adhering to what God's word was. And it's been that way from the beginning. There's always, starting back with Moses. I mean, it was Moses was the one... Remember when they came out? And Moses couldn't handle it all, so they put him in groups of what? Fifty. And he had to have little captains and little lieutenants that did it for him. But the purpose of the faith community is also enforcing that accountability. The third thing he reveals in this passage is the presence of Christ in the faith community. So the process of growth in his faith community, the purpose of his faith community, and the presence of Christ in his faith community. So let's read the passage, and we're going to come back and we'll look at each one of these. And then we'll make a, a couple of applications. Starting in verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, before I moved here back in 1991 to Jacksonville, I had never been part of a church that exercised church discipline. And by that, I mean I had never been part of a church that went through the steps that we just read of a person going to somebody who had offended them, then taking two people and going to them, and then bringing it before the church, and then putting them outside of the church. I'd never been a part of a church that had done that. And so when it first happened, I'm going, wow, this is kind of wild. I mean, I'd been going to church for a long time, and nobody had ever explained that to me. I knew it was in the Bible, because they showed it. They read it. But, but I'd never seen it lived out actually in the church because the culture in which we live in extols a God that only loves and doesn't bring any kind of discipline in the life of the people who, they, who sin. And that's really an idol God. That's not the God of the Bible. If you only preach one aspect of God, you're making really an idol of him. Because he's not just about love. He's also about justice. He's also about purity in his body. And, and today, you would be called a bigot. You would be called a judge. You know, somebody who's judgmental. For bring, if somebody is in sin, 
and they've been confronted about that sin and they continue to do it, there are remedies that God has put in place to purify his body. And the body needs to be pure, not perfect. There's a difference between perfect, perfection, and direction. But you don't knowingly rebel against God and continue that without consequences. You can't do that. And if you choose as a leadership to allow that to happen, I can promise you God will bring consequences on that body. He does. It starts, though, in here with this word listen. Four times in this passage, the word listen. And it's the same concept of Shema, listening that produces an action. In each case, what you're trying to do is get the person who is offending the person who is the accused, in this case, to listen to the fact that they've done something that goes against God's word. They've hurt somebody. In this particular case, it's a personal thing. It would be like me offending Brad. And if I offend Brad, then instead of Brad going to Amos and saying, you know what Doug did, Amos? Instead of doing that, he comes to me and he says, hey, Doug, you know, the other day, when we were uh, after the radio program, you said this, it really offended me. That's the way you deal with it. Or Doug, I heard you said this about me. Is that true? Because if it is, that really hurts me. That's the way you deal with it. But see, we don't like to confront. What we do is we pull away. Remember, the goal with God is always restoration and a path to redemption. It's a path to redeem a relationship. It's a path to redeem the relationship first with him and second with each other. And he wants his church to be pure. So the first step, he says, in this process of our growth in his faith community is to first personally and privately go to the person that has offended us. Now, have there been people in your life that have offended you that you've not done that to? I'm guilty. I'm very guilty of that. And I was deeply convicted about that as I worked through this. And, and, And so when you do that, you are actually bringing glory to God because you're doing what his word says. And as much as somebody says you're being hateful, you're being judgmental. No, you are glorifying God when you do that. If you go there in a loving, humble attitude. See, there's two, two people involved in that first process, the accuser and the accused. The accuser needs to be humble and loving. The accused needs to be humble and broken. Pride is the enemy of both, right? Pride. Satan wants to create pride in the accuser saying, you shouldn't have done that to me. You say you're a Christian. But he also wants to bring pride into the accused to say, the only reason I did that is because you did this. You see, we always try to justify. We justify with our wives. We justify with our bosses. We justify with our friends. And, and, and so the way we deal with it is we personally and privately go there. Galatians 6.1 talks about what this should look like real quick. In Galatians 6, 1, it just says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
What's our attitude as we deal? That's the first step. The second thing is, let's say if the brother repents right there. You know what, Brad? You're right. I was wrong. The next step, it's over. Isn't that cool? It's over. It's done. I love this about my wife. My wife is not a grudge holder. I am. You know, I tend to hold grudges worse than she does with people. But I mean, the moment I... I come to my wife and say, man, Lori, I was so wrong. I, I don't blame you for feeling that way. She's like, okay, it's over. Don't worry about it. I've forgotten. And, and like 15 minutes later, I'm still feeling bad. So I want to apologize again. She said, Doug, I already told you it's over. I have a good friend. He's not longer here. He's with the Lord now. And he used to say, you know what? Don't dig up dead bones because they stink. Once it's buried, it's buried. If they listen and repent, it's over. But if they don't, if they're rebellious and they go on, then you go get two or three people to go with you. And the implication there is somebody older and wiser to go with you because they not only bring with you the extra people that would say, okay, now it's not just Brad bringing an accusation, it's Brad and Amos and Tom coming to me. And there, there are three. So what kind of pressure am I going to feel from a spiritual perspective if I'm in sin and I've got three brothers that are loving the Lord coming to me saying, hey, Doug, we really see you violating Scripture here and you're a believer. Please repent. Now, if that happens... And by the way, that's right out of Deuteronomy 19, 15, right out of, in the Old Testament, it was about criminal activity. It was in a criminal proceeding, but it applies here because it's referenced here. The same thing, Paul references it when he talks about bringing a charge against an elder when Timothy, uh, I think it's 1 Timothy 5, he references the same thing. Don't bring a charge against an elder unless you have two or three witnesses. It goes back to that same thing back in Deuteronomy. And again, if they repent, it's over. It's done. But if not, then it goes to the next step, which is you bring it before the whole body. The whole body of believers. In this case, it'd be this group. See, we're, we're and, and the problem in America now is, and this has happened because I've known two people it's happened to, they get... Discipline. They go through the steps of discipline personally, then two to three, and then the body. And then the body says, okay, you're still not repentant. Treat them as a tax gatherer and a Gentile. And then they go, okay, we're going to go to this church over here. But that's okay. That's between them and God. It, you know, you can't worry about them doing that. You still go through the process. And, and, and that's what happens. It says when you bring them before the whole body... First, before you treat them as a tax gatherer and a Gentile, which is a pagan and a traitor, by the way. But before you treat them that way, the first thing you do is you tell the whole body. Now, why do you think you tell everybody? It's a body. Yeah, it's a community of faith. And the hope is, is that let's say I'm walking down the road and Dave sees me. Now that he knows about it. Hey, Doug, you know, I was at church the other day. And they told me about what's going on with you. Can I just really encourage you? I'm praying for you, and I really encourage you to turn to the Lord on this. Tom sees me again, even though he's already, you know what, Doug? 
Bob sees me. Jerry sees me. Four or five people see you and come up. What is God doing every time he brings somebody into your life? And every time that message, he's graciously that shepherd coming and saying, come on back into the fold. Come on back. I'm, come here. I, I, Ray showed us a video of a sheep that was lost and a shepherd that went. And you know what the shepherd did? The shepherd went out there and they go like this. Beep, 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 beep. They just start making that sound, kind of sound. And then that sheep starts following. And every time we're all going out there telling them, that's the God reaching out to them saying, come on, come on back, come on back. Now they don't have to listen. They can be a goat. And they may be a goat. Because goats just go do what they want to do. But that sheep, if it's a sheep, he's going to recognize the shepherd's voice. My sheep hear my voice. And if enough of his voice keeps getting heard, that sheep eventually will hopefully turn. Because either one of two things are going to happen. He's either going to turn or he's going to be taken home early, I believe. Because God loves his sheep too much to let him stay out there for the rest of the time on earth. And leave it long. Because it's a terrible witness. By the way, over in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, 5, Paul says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, but to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. He's talking about the whole group of people. This, at this time, this person has been put out. And they're feeling the weight. They're feeling the absence of the community. And that's that fourth step. You remove the unrepentant person from the faith community. And you say, you know what, Doug? You're not, you're not welcome here until you do repent. I'm sorry to have to say that to you. But you're just not welcome. Because you're not walking with Jesus. You're walking in blatant rebellion against him. And you're not welcome here until that happens. And we're going to be praying for you. We love you. That's the most loving thing you can do to that person. You know why? Because you're never more like Christ when you seek somebody's purity above your own relationship with them. When you seek their purity above your selfish relationship with them, you're never more than like Christ there. That's what he did. He died for their purity. He cared for their sin. And yet he loves them. And so the person is put out. It says, treat him as a Gentile, which is a pagan, and a tax gatherer, which is a traitor. But here's the great thing. What did Jesus do with Gentiles and tax gatherers? He went after them, didn't he? He loved them. He loved them. If they repent, they're welcome back. If not, they're just turned over to Satan. You let them go. Paul did it with Alexander and Hymenus. Over in, uh, I think it's 1 Timothy. He said, I turned him over to Satan. Ananias and Sapphira had an opportunity to repent. They didn't. Bam. Gone. Saul in the Old Testament. Listen, Saul and David. You got Saul who all he did was he didn't kill everybody the way he was supposed to. He disobeyed God. And you got David over here who murdered one of his best friends, took his wife because he slept with her. 
Saul loses the kingdom and Samuel walks away from him to symbolize God's presence going away from him, but not David. Why? It was the difference in how they responded. You see, the issue is not the sin. The issue is our response to the sin. Do we repent? If we repent, he's ready and waiting. 2 Thess 3.6 says to stay away from people like that. Stay away from the unrepentant. And listen, if somebody is put out of the body, it doesn't mean you're mean to them. It doesn't mean you're rude to them. What it means is you don't have fellowship with them. You don't have fellowship with them. And you let them feel the pain of being outside the faith community. Because the faith community should resemble Christ in its purity. The problem within the church today in America is the church here, we try to look like the, ch- the world. And we shouldn't look like the world. We should look different than the world. But we build our services. Heck, most of our buildings now look like malls with coffee shops and, and like escalators. and every, It looks like you're walking into a mall. It doesn't look like you're going into a place of worship. Unless you worship shopping. We have allowed the culture to so influence us that there's no difference. You could be going to a Rotary Club meeting. It's not a group of believers coming together to just pray, to see God's face, to, to be instructed, and to be a community that cares about looking different. We don't want to look different than the world a lot of times. We want to look like the world. That was not the purpose of the faith community. And he says here in verse uh, 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's already said that once. Remember, we covered that a few chapters back. And what he's saying is that, that when you're bound in sin, that's rebellion. That, that phrase was a Jewish phrase that means that if you're in sin, you're like shackled to it. You're bound. But if you're um, repentant of that sin, you're loosed from it. And what he's saying is when you're bound, it's already been decreed from God in heaven. And the church is the vehicle that he's using to bring about either the binding being revealed or the loosening being revealed. Do you understand that? That it's the community of believers that brings about the revealing of whether it's bound or whether it's loosed. That's the faith community. Now, why is that important? Well, because we are exercising God's authority and his love for the lost sheep, and we're showing it to the world. What he just, what Brad covered last week in 18, 10 through 14 about the shepherd going after the sheep, that's what we're showing by personally going to them, by them bringing somebody, them bringing a faith community. I'm, I'm telling you, if we started doing that more, people would be like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. But you know what we do when we have sin going on? We just don't address it. Heck, half the shepherds don't even know the people in their body to address it. They don't. They don't even know when people are living together. They don't know when people are out doing things they shouldn't be doing because they don't know the people. Because church is about 
what? Just coming in, getting some kind of message, and then leaving. That's why I want SWAT, and I feel convicted that SWAT is to be a faith community. Where if I don't see your buddy, I say, hey, will you check on him? See how he's doing? You know, Brad, if, if I don't see Brad in a few weeks, do I call you? Or if I say, hey, Brad, I'm missing you. I don't want Brad just to come because he sits out there and he's a... I want him to be part of this community so that if Brad sees me doing something I shouldn't be doing, he can say, hey, Doug, man, we need to talk. And it's the same with all of us. But if you only come sporadically, you, you, you don't have relationship with people. But I encourage you, if you see anybody in this group that is here and you're a part of regularly being here, feel free. That's what the community's for. Personally go to them. Take two people and go to them. Take the, the whole body and let them know. And if they don't repent after that, then you say, okay, hey, you're not welcome to come back here until this gets resolved. And then you let them experience what it's like because I promise you, as long as they're away, they're going to feel the weight of that sin and it will weigh on them like David said my bones my bones wasted away and finally verse 19 and 20 the presence of Christ in faith community is what he's revealing he says if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them he's talking about here in the context of dealing with the purity of the body the holiness of the body this whole thing is about holiness. And one of the most misquoted verses in the world is 1820. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That does not mean when you have only three people show up for a prayer meeting that God's there because of that verse. That's what people say a lot of times. Listen, if one person shows up, God's there. He's talking about in the context of church discipline here. That if you've got two or three people that are together on this, then he's in the midst with us saying, my stamp of approval, as long as you're according to my word and you're doing it my way, I'm there with you people. And it's an encouragement. And it's all about holiness. Does it work? course it does does that mean everybody's going to be repentant no it's not going to fix everybody but we see there's a great example in scripture where Paul in Galatians rebukes Peter the leader of the church now think about this you've got Paul who was killing Christians comes into the body and he goes and meets Peter and Peter is refusing to eat with Gentiles something that he had already been told to do because Jesus said it's okay. He has done it, but now he's feeling a little pressure and he pulls away. And Paul says, I rebuked him to his face. Did Paul pull away from him? Did Peter pull away from him? No. You know what happens if you read over at the end of Peter in 2 Peter 3? Peter says, our beloved brother Paul. It works. The way it's designed to. It's about bringing about holiness. Now, there's a guy named J.C. Ryle. Wrote a book on holiness. A little bitty book. And I read this book. And uh, this will take about three minutes. And then I'm going to close. But I want to read it. I just happened to grab this book on my way out to Albuquerque. Not knowing that I was even going to 
go this particular direction out there or feeling like this is where God wanted it to go. But I read this and it brought me to tears up on a mountain. I read this up on a mountain out in Albuquerque, 10,000 feet sitting up there just looking out. And I want you to hear what J.C. Ryle was moved by God to write. To find out what practical holiness is, let's look at the people who God calls holy. Remember, the purpose of discipline, any confrontation is to bring about holiness. A person can go to great lengths and never reach holiness. It's not about knowledge because Balaam had that. Nor is it about a profession of faith. Judas had that. Nor morality and good outward conduct because the rich young ruler had that. Yet none of those people were holy. A person may have any or all of these qualities and never see the Lord. What is it then? I'll try and draw a mental but imperfect picture of holiness. It is the habit of being one mind with God and agreeing with his judgment. This includes hating what he hates and loving what he loves. It means measuring everything by the standard of his word. It includes striving to be like Jesus. It goes beyond just depending on him to laboring to have his mind and to be conformed to his image. Holy people strive to avoid every known sin and to keep every known commandment. Their minds are bent toward God with a great desire to do his will. They have a greater fear of displeasing God than the world. Their lives are characterized by long-suffering, gentleness, patience, self-control, giving, and kindness. They care about others. They care about their character, their feelings, their property, their souls. They hate lying, slandering, backbiting, cheating, and dishonesty. They show mercy to other people. They're not content with just staying away from evil, but will try and do good. They desire a pure heart and they dread anything that contaminates their spirit and they try to avoid it. Holy people fear God like a child who wants to please his father because he loves him. They strive for humility and they look at others as more important than themselves. They see more evil in their own hearts than they do others. They work to be good spouses, good parents, good children, good bosses, good employees, good friends, good citizens and neighbors. They also strive to set their hearts on things above and to hold on to things of earth with a loose grip. They value everything based on how it draws them nearer to God. True holiness is something in a person that can be seen and felt by those around them. Like light, if it exists, it's going to show. The greatest misery of a holy person is that he carries with him a body of death. When he wants to do good, evil is present with him. But the mark of a holy person is that he is not at peace with indwelling sin. Holiness does not come to perfection all at once, and our growth is progressive and a process. But to have a holy character is the heart's desire and prayer of all true Christians. They may not attain it, but they always aim for it. I cannot see how anyone can be called holy who willfully allows himself to sin and is not humbled and ashamed of it. I dare not call anyone holy who habitually and willfully does what he knows is wrong. We need to examine ourselves. Holiness doesn't save us. Our purest works are filthy rags and our best is stained and tainted. But we must be holy because, first of all, God commands it. Second, it's the purpose for which Christ came into the world. Third, it's the only evidence that we have a saving faith in Jesus. Fourth, it's the only proof that we love Jesus. Fifth, it's the only evidence that we are God's children. Sixth, it's the only way to help others. 
It points people to Jesus, and finally, it prepares us for heaven. The great question for us is not what we think, what we feel, or even what we say. The great question is what do we do? Am I growing in holiness, and am I helping others to grow in holiness? That's really the point of this passage. Am I growing in holiness, and am I helping others to grow in holiness. The church, the faith community, is God's gift to be able to help us accomplish that. And that's what he tells his disciples there. That this is there's a process involved. Are you going to be a part of that process? You should be. So Dave, will you close our time in prayer?